As I said at the beginning of the service, I am Steve Breedlove, and I have the privilege of being the Bishop of the Diocese of Christ Our Hope, the diocese in which Church of the Cross is resident. Uh, there is no subtle or catchy way for me to get into my sermon today. Unless you are a visitor that has had no connection whatsoever with Church of the Cross, and if that's true, welcome. But if that's otherwise not you, you know what we are here about today. We are all here to worship God, right? We are here to join together as the family around the table of Jesus Christ. We're here to be encouraged by the Word of God and instructed by the Word of God, but all of that in a peculiar context, because seven days ago, your founding and only pastor resigned. And many of you just had a week, uh, perhaps a two at the most, to process this, and you're obviously still processing, trying to understand, try, talking, praying, trying to imagine what the next season of Church of the Cross will be like. Well, we'll get into the nuts and bolts of that in the meeting after today's worship service, and I trust that that will help you. But for right now, I simply want to assure you that you're part of a family of churches, a family who is on mission, a family called the Diocese of Christ or Hope. And by God's grace, it is a healthy Christian family with many truly gifted and godly men and women who love the Lord, who love and serve him together with each other. And that extended family is earnestly praying for you. I just returned from a three-day diocesan retreat south of Albany. About 30 clergy and lay leaders from the Northeast. Uh, Jessica was there. Uh, Connor and Lexi were there. And this church was at the top of everyone's prayer list. In addition, in our world, there are these people called bishops. And I get to be one. <laughs> I get to serve you as the bishop of this diocese, and fundamental to my ministry is pastoring pastors and churches, and that includes several things, but I get to step back and take a larger view of what's going on here and know what's out there and mobilize resources and network and connect and all for the well-being of this church, but more than anything else, it is my privilege and joy to pray for you, to love you, to walk alongside you, to catalyze prayer and support from you from your immediate family and even beyond, because a lot of people are saying, what can we do? And again, all of that is going to come into focus a little bit more in the next hour. But I want you to take heart today. We've had great songs of worship and great scriptures that have been read. I want you to take heart in the Lord's care and the family's love for you and the simple fact that I get to be here today and what I sort of symbolize by that. And with that, I want to launch into my message. Uh, please turn with me in your Bibles or open your phones to the New Testament book of Philippians. I'm going to be hitting a lot of verses today, and it might be helpful for you to be able to read them. I want to make seven statements picked from this wonderful, intensely personal letter that you and I need to think about today. Let's begin pretty near the beginning, verse 3, chapter 1. I thank my God in all my remembrance for you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul wrote those words as the founding pastor of this local church, and you can read the dramatic story of the birth of the church in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. He was the agent of their birth, but he is absolutely clear. 
God is the one who called them into existence, and God is the one who gave them life, and God is the one who says he will sustain the life of this church. Mark Booker may have been the founding pastor of Church of the Cross, but he was not the founder. And he was and is not the foundation, and he would never have claimed to be. He knew Jesus, and he knew what this is about. As a result, please receive this statement today. God began the work of redemption in each one of you. Individually, God began the work called Church of the Cross. He has called you into it. He will continue it. He will complete it. When God establishes his church through Jesus, he guarantees that he will protect it. We heard it today. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Now, if there's anything we learn from the long, sad history of Israel in the Old Testament is this. God is a covenant-making God who made a forever covenant agreement with the nation of Israel. And the people of Israel were singularly unfaithful and unreliable to their side of the bargain, right? But God was completely faithful to his side. And one of the most attention-getting words in the Psalms is the Hebrew word chesed, which is translated various ways, but most of the time, steadfast love or unchanging love or steadfast faithfulness or loyal covenant love. And it is always applied to God. God's unfaith, uh, faithful, unchanging, steadfast covenant love has been poured out upon the people of God. And the nation of Israel is the living illustration of that, his commitment to them, relentless commitment to them. So to all faithful seeking Christians, there's a solid promise that God is going to complete the work of salvation in their lives. We sang it today, God's never going to give up, right? We kept singing that, right? God's never going to give up. And we bank on it. But I want you to notice one simple fact, that this promise that Paul makes and that we have quoted often as it applies to ourselves or people that we love is actually written to a church, a local church. And I think we can take it very, very personally and bank on it and take it to the bank here at Church of the Cross. Now, in saying that, I don't want to overpromise because let me just be a little bit clear here. Some churches get older and fade over time, even though they're faithful. Not every good and godly faithful church grows. I mean, think about the Christian churches in Syria or in Egypt at this time of, at this time of the world. But even those churches that grow old faithfully or that wither under persecution have a legacy, a story of the faithfulness of God and of this, that are lives that are changed forever through the power of Jesus Christ. And of course, there are local expressions of the church, local churches, even denominations in the, uh, in the rest of the world that turn from the true faith and are racked with division or immorality or sin, and they die or they fade or they shrink. But that's only the story of a church if the people within the church choose that path. Because on God's part, he's completely committed to us, to you, to this church. And he who began a good work in you, collective you, Paul even says, you all, <laughs> will complete it. Now let me scroll ahead to a second point, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. 
The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So my point is this. God works beyond our imaginations and understanding to spread the gospel through those who are eager to represent him, regardless of the circumstances. There's no circumstances in our lives that can prevent the gospel from going forward. The Lord even overtakes, he says in this passage, and absorbs the mixed motives of people who proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And it's in the gospel that people's lives are transformed, even when the circumstances seem impossible and the messengers are broken and unhealed sinners. And in that regard, there is a crucial, ongoing mission for Church of the Cross in Boston to continue the work that God began in you and is working out through you and to proclaim and to live that into the fabric of this community with integrity and beauty and goodness. This past Wednesday, I was in Amesbury with two of my colleagues from the Diocese of Christ Our Hope, and we were meeting with the bishop and the leadership team of the Anglican Diocese of New England, which is another diocese in our denomination, the Anglican Church in North America, the Serbian churches here in New England. We discussed Mark's resignation. And the instant response was this, from our brothers and sisters in AD&E. Bishop Steve, Church of the Cross is vital to the work of Christ in Boston. We need this church to thrive. Please, please, Bishop, make every effort to walk with them through, through this to a good end. And by the way, what can we do to help? You've got a future, and it's wonderful. I'm excited to see what God continues to do through you. The third statement, writing from prison in Rome, Paul says this, verse 21, for, me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And my statement to you is this. You will be served and cared for. The Lord will make a way. We'll talk again some details about that in the next hour. But let me just tell you a little story. I was supposed to be in Boston right this moment, <laughs> preaching at Church of the Atonement and ordaining a young man to the diaconate named Matt Trailer. And ordination is a big deal. You don't jump ship on that easily. Matt's parents were coming from Florida. His in-laws were coming from Washington State. He had a bunch of co-workers who are mainly not followers of Jesus who were coming to be a part of the service as well, and then an entire new Sudanese church that we're birthing here was going to join him as well. But when the, so when the pre, uh, parish council asked me to be here, if at all possible, I just said I can't. I'm, I'm committed. I, I, this ordination has been in the works for months. But then I sat and thought again for just a moment. We are, as I mentioned, planting a Sudanese church in Buffalo. And this afternoon, we're getting the ball rolling by meeting with the leaders of that church and bringing together a very special man that God has placed in our midst, a bishop from Sudan who lives within the footprint of our diocese and who serves with us in the extension of the gospel to immigrant churches. 
and he's going to be there to do some brainstorming with those Sudanese people and with some other leaders in the community. So I realized, after I hadn't, hadn't, just hadn't thought about it, that one of our own diocesan bishops would be there, and he could ordain Matt. So I told Atonement's pastor, and I told Matt that I needed to be here if at all possible. They just said immediately, they didn't skip a beat, of course, go. And so then I called up Bishop Andudu, and I said, well, I don't know when you're coming in, but could you drive in early from Virginia? And he said, Bishop Steve, I'm already planning to be there Saturday anyway, so no problem. Be happy to do it. So I just want to say I'm deeply grateful to God and to the body of Christ for the freedom to be with you this morning. And I say that not because I'm any kind of a magic bullet, okay? I'm just a guy that's here for you. But I symbolize something. You are loved, and God's got your back. He will provide. He will provide. Fourth, I've already mentioned to you that you have a continuing call and mission. And in that light, I do have a fourth comment, an exhortation that has an edge of warning, verse 27 of chapter 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What most threatens the ongoing mission and ministry of Church of the Cross is not a change in leadership. It is, if, it is if the people who are the church, who are the agents of mission in the Boston area, fail to behave in a way appropriate to your identity as being citizens of the kingdom of God, which is literally the translation in verse 27. If your moral or ethical life personally begins to unravel, or if you descend into anger or bitterness towards God or toward one another, or especially if you fail to guard and protect unity, standing together firmly. Especially if mistrust creeps through the cracks of communication that will eventually, inevitably appear. Uh, the parish council was praying beforehand, and somebody on the parish council prayed, forgive us for the fact when we don't say the right thing at the right time, and give us the strength to say the right thing or to admit it when we don't. That's going to happen. But don't jump to conclusions. Don't run to worst-case scenarios. Talk. Talk. I want to be clear of this. Unity in Christ does not require unanimity on all things. we got a process. It does require unity on the essentials of the Christian faith, our creedal unity. It does require unity in terms of the authority of Scripture. And unity in a diocese in the Anglican world also requires agreement to support the doctrine and practices of the church that are beyond the essentials. But not without question on that last point not without discussion. With respect and humility, we can work through many issues that are not essential to the core of Orthodox Christianity. And we can understand that good and godly people may be different on this, that, or the other, as long as we're submitting and working together to the overall call of this church. And beyond that, this is a time when many, there's, there's many things to work through as this family comes to grips with the loss of the booker. You're going to have feelings and thoughts and questions that come up. And you can have honest discussions in a way that either divides or that heals. Can I tell you how to walk through this rightly? Let me just quote God. <laughs> Chapter 2, verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, 
affection and sympathy. When you're talking to somebody, do you love them? Do you sympathize? Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of the others. I really don't have much to add to that. That leads to my fifth comment. God's call for your life in the months ahead includes a solid, sustained commitment to humble and radical service. Honoring each other, listening well, rolling up your sleeves in sacrifice for others. Let me just say something to you, dear brothers and sisters. You are the church. You are where the action is. Where the gospel meets the world is when the people of God are living in the world, and that's you. That is the cutting edge of the work of the church. And the laity are the people who really carry the church into the world. You have gifts and capacities, insights and ministries that must be offered, offered as sacrificial service to Jesus in helping this wonderful flock grow, not only through this interim time, but into the future, into the next phases of its life. Follow the examples in this chapter, and I encourage you to read it, of Jesus, and of Paul, and of Timothy, and Epaphroditus. They're detailed in chapter 2. They sacrificially served for the sake of Christ, and for the work of ministry, and for the mission of the church. Paul says, I poured my life out as a drink offering. We know what Jesus did. He laid aside his prerogatives as God and emptied himself of those prerogatives and took up the form of a servant so that he might serve us by his death on the cross. Timothy, another famous name in New Testament annals, in verse 19, it says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. I'm going to send him over, and he's going to take the time to come there, however many weeks it takes to travel, in order to be with you and care for you for a season. And then there's this guy named Epaphroditus, by the way, who you've got to look at this and say he must, if nothing else, be just a utility player in the pantheon of the big stars, right? He was a deacon in the church in Philippi. But in fact, if you look at this passage, he is actually the star of pastoral ministry to this church. In verse 25, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my, fellow, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he's been longing for you all and has been distressed because you had heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Finally, I have one last word of encouragement. God is committed to you. 
God is able to proclaim his name through the most unusual of circumstances. God has called us and understood that he will send what you need and make a way for people and resources to come your way. He has called us to unity and to love together and to stand together to guard our unity. He has called us to a radical form of servanthood and pouring ourselves out on the life for the life of others. But one last word of encouragement, and again, I'm kind of back to the beginning or what I've said along the way, that God will supply your needs as a church. Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now Paul speaks out of the testimony of his own life. He had learned, he says in that context, to be content with his life, whether it was in poverty or in wealth. And that was because of one supreme reality which he states earlier in chapter 4. Philippians 4, 4 and 5. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. I'm going to ask you to do a very un-Bostonian thing, okay? I'm from North Carolina, okay? So come on out of your Boston shell here. I didn't mean that. I love you guys. I love coming up here, and it's really wonderful to be with you. But could you just say to me, the Lord is near? The Lord is near. Let's say it again. The Lord is near. Amen. The week before this past one, about 10 days ago, I was in Boston for 24 hours in order to meet with the parish council and plan how to walk together in the months ahead. I flew in... Uh, early morning so I could drive up to Ipswich and meet face-to-face with my spiritual director who I usually talk with on Skype. And I had a lot, stack, a lot stacked up in my soul. It had been a couple of months since I talked to him, and uh, I was really honestly carrying a lot of burdens and disappointments. There are many churches in our diocese in the last two or three months have had intense needs, and several clergy are in crisis for different but quite serious reasons. I'm just carrying a lot of that in my soul. We have a son with a wife and four kids who is out of work, and things are getting pretty desperate. We have a son-in-law fighting to escape the bankruptcy in his business. The heaviest thing that we were carrying is the stretched-out 88-day process of the dying of our youngest grandchild, who we buried on January 4th. We buried Beatrice Rose Dasher after 88 days that were all spent in the PICU at the University of North Carolina Hospital. And then I found out Tuesday, right before I flew up here, that Sally had glaucoma. And it's treatable, and plenty of people have it, but honestly, it was one of those things where it was kind of like the straw was about to break the camel's back. And I laid in bed that night, and I said to God, would you please let up? That was my prayer. I don't know if you've ever prayed that prayer. You have my blessing to do so. Would you please let up? Could you please give me a break? So I unloaded this all on Doug, and he sat and listened, and he responded this way. Steve, do you know what is the most frequently repeated promise of Scripture? The one that God comes back to time and time, again and again? I said, no, I don't, as a matter of fact. So he went on. 
Well, let me just be sure that you understand that God does not promise you anything more than a fully human existence. He never promises that our kid, grandkids won't die, that we won't get glaucoma, that the people that we love and care for won't fall into conflict, that we'll be perfectly employed in a fulfilling career. None of that. In fact, he seems to promise the opposite. Through many tribulations and trials, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. I think that's called human life, by the way. But what he does promise constantly all over Scripture is this, I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am near. In fact, I am here. And I want you to receive that. I want you to hear it. I want you to sit with it. I want you to listen to it. And I want you to ponder that the Lord is here now with you. From Hebrews 13, God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And with their lips, the people of God have always affirmed the truth of God with a small word called amen. I will never leave you nor forsake you, says God. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the people of God said, amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will continue throughout this service as we come before you and as we come to your table to meet with us. Lord, thank you so much that you are our Father. You know our hearts. Lord, that you are the one from whom every family on heaven and earth is named, and that includes the family called Church of the Cross. Lord, um, it is just um, a joy, a privilege to be here among these dear brothers and sisters in Jesus. And I know that you know every heart in this room. Not only the things that they bear relative to the Church of the Cross and the changes that are ahead for it, but also what they bear personally and individually that is unknown to anyone but you. Lord, we are thankful that we are not alone. And thankful, Lord, that you know us and you know us in your love and that through Jesus Christ, all barriers have been removed. We are reconciled, we are redeemed, and we are being transformed and healed through Jesus and the power of the Spirit. So there's so much to be grateful for. Thank you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen.